Welcome to the next episode of uh, Christian Businessman's Perspective. So what you're going to hear in this podcast is real. I'm going to tell the whole story as much as I can remember. And uh, I'm not going to make it pretty. You know, I've given it some thought as to the impact it might have on a person who is uh, about to go through quadruple bypass. And I decided that since I wanted the truth before my surgery, I'm going to write about the good and I'm going to write about the bad and then I'm going to put it into this podcast. So I had to get my thoughts down. And uh, then I wanted to convey it over this podcast for more people to be, uh, you know, to share the share my experience with more people. Um, if you can't handle, uh, the real deal, uh, then you can always find somebody's story that, uh, talks about just the good that is, uh, you know, a result of having quadruple bypass surgery. And, uh, but you know, I, I, I feel I owe it to you. I mean, uh, and I mean it in a kind way. I feel it uh, that I owe the truth to hear the good and the bad. I don't want it to be perceived as negative. I don't want to be you know, negative Nancy or anything like that. I just want to tell the story as it happened to me. It's been a few months since my surgery, which happened on a Thursday morning in July of 2019. I'm feeling uh, well. I'm healing well. And uh, it's just been very recently where I started to reflect back on uh, some of that experience. And it's taken some time to get to the point where I'm really starting to feel better. Um, my energy level is much higher than it was before my surgery and things are looking up for me. So there is positive and good things. Like I said, good things are happening. I was 56 at the time of my surgery. I'm now 57. And I know that my experience is different than a lot of other people's. You know, I was, I, I later, later learned that the average age for quadruple bypass surgery is 72 so relative to that, I'm I'm a pretty young uh, young man for having to uh, you know d- to have gone through this surgery. Um, in many ways, no doubt the experience will be rather similar to those that have uh, gone through through this surgery. So my experience about uh, about five years ago, maybe a little more. Uh, I was uh, going for a nice, easy walk, a nice, easy stroll with my wife along the lake up north near our home. And uh, all of a sudden, I felt this quick pressure jolt, I guess is the best way to explain it. It lasted like maybe a second. Uh, I stopped. I looked at my wife and she looked at me and she said, what happened? Are you okay? And I, I, you know, I didn't have any pain. And so, I, having just felt pressure, I thought, okay, maybe a, a valve in my heart had flipped. I don't know. I don't know the anatomy of the heart. I didn't know it then. I don't know it hardly at all now. So, I just stopped thinking about it. didn't worry about it. A couple of weeks uh, later, while visiting my family doctor up north for a totally unrelated uh, issue, I mentioned the experience to him. And my family doctor said, sounds like your heart skipped a beat. I wouldn't worry about it. But then about, I don't know, maybe six months later, it happened again. This time, though, uh, when it started occurring, it started happening for a longer period of time. It was just like maybe a second, maybe a second and a half. Move the clock forward. Fast forward about three or four years. 
and it was happening more frequently. Once I was running, I'm an international sales manager, and I was running through the Frankfurt uh, Germany airport, I think it was, and this time that pressure lasted for about five seconds. And it stopped only after I stepped aside and, and waited it out. Now, having a, a son in his fourth year of med school, I mentioned this to him when I got back, when I returned. And, uh, of course, he looked at me with these huge eyes, and he said, Dad, that sounds like heart disease. If I were you, I'd get into the hospital or get in to see your doctor right away and get it checked out. So a couple of days uh, later, I think it was, you know, I was walking through the woods uh, with a friend of mine who had just had a mild heart attack a few years prior, and he noticed me out of breath while we were walking through the woods to do some hunting. And he also encouraged me. He said, hey, man, you need to get on a, you need to get on a treadmill and get checked out. So um, after a stress test, I was informed that uh, <laughs> I needed to have a stent. But stay with me because the story changes quickly. The, car the cardiologist uh, saw the test results and explained that I had one artery, what he called the LED, I think it was, also known as the Widowmaker, was about 70% blocked, he thought. You know, that's what he said. He didn't know if there were other arteries that were blocked, but suspected at the time that I'd only had the one problem, that one artery. And he said, optimistically, a stent will do the job. Of course, at the age of 56, I was a bit down, you might say, about having to have this done. Never in a million years did I believe that I had blocked arteries. No one in my family had a need to go through this. And here I was, hovering, uh, oh, I don't know, about 220 pounds at the time on any given day over the last 20 years. And I probably averaged anywhere between 210, 220 pounds at five foot seven. So I'm a little overweight, but it's not like I'm 350 pounds or 400 pounds with my eating way out of control. My, my wife and I actually split meals, and I've done that for decades, a long time. All that didn't seem to matter in my case, though, though, splitting salmon meals for the last 20 years and avoiding steak. No, I'm not bitter, uh, but it didn't mean as much. You know, don't get me wrong. There was a time in my life where I was overeating. And uh, like I said, I, I averaged 210, 220. And I, at one point in my life in the early 2000s, I think I got up to 243 pounds. But all in all, um, you know, although a doctor would call 210 pounds, 220 pounds obese, I, I never considered myself obese. I would say I was always overweight. Anyway, let's, you know, I, and I, I don't have diabetes. Um, I don't smoke, you know, so I consider myself relatively healthy. So what the heck, 56 years old and here I am looking at a stent. So I move forward, you know, it took a while to get on that table to have that stent put in. Um, had to go through insurance procedures and so forth, you know, to get that approved. But of course, at the age of 56, I was a bit down, you might say, right? Being placed on the table in the most non-private way, the cardiologist was starting the procedure to place a stent. My right wrist was opened up, uh, the, the artery, and the pain wasn't too bad. There was pain there, but it wasn't too bad. But I did feel it when he cut into my wrist. The idea was for the doctor to go through my wrist and not my leg, although they prepped me to go through my leg in case they needed to. But they were going to try to go through my wrist, and they did, and then up into my heart. Before this could be all done, he needed to use dye to get a closer look at the paths, I guess, you know, the artery flow and blood flow around my heart, and to see 
which areas of my heart most needed the stent for the proper placement of this stent. All of this was, I was told, to take about 45 minutes to an hour, maybe a tad more. Well, about 20 minutes into the procedure, the cardiologist walked out of the operating room. I mean, he just stopped. Didn't, I, I don't remember him saying a word to me. He was looking up at the screen, and he just turned around and walked away. The nurse started packing up the gear and then turned to me and asked me to move over to the gurney. I was on my way back to the recovery room, and I asked the nurse, a male nurse at the time, by the way, what about the stent? And he replied, the doctor will be in to talk to you about that. On my way back, while being rolled down the hall, my wife, Mary, met me and said, hey, good news, you don't need a stent. And I said, eh, that's not necessarily good news, babes. And sure enough, within five minutes, the cardiologist, the cardiologist walked back into the room to tell me that I definitely needed quadruple bypass and it would be scheduled right away. I went from your heart is skipping beats to don't worry about it to you need quadruple bypass right away. And also, needless to say, I was in shock. Here I am. I got a little bit of pressure in my chest five years prior to they're going to open up my chest. My travels, my job, my international sales management position, everything was on hold. And that's not good. I was told that on June 18th that I needed bypass surgery, and now I needed to wait to hear when this was all going to take place. That alone was a bit stressful. After waiting weeks for the stent to be approved by insurance, I now needed to wait again for the insurance to approve my bypass. And had I not pushed the stent along, which I was doing, and accepted meds as an alternative by the cardiologist, it's possible I would have had dropped dead somewhere along my travels, maybe in Frankfurt, Germany. I thought of having a heart attack outside of the U.S., and you know, that's not pleasant. And I thought of waiting longer, and that was worse. You know, so this all begs the question to me, who would have been responsible had I had a heart attack while waiting for my insurance company? The insurance company would have been responsible? The doctor would have been responsible? Me? You know, how did I get in this pickle? How did I get in this jam? So I waited. I waited uh, another, how many weeks? Five weeks. And I prepared myself mentally and physically. For instance, I knew that the more weight I lost before the surgery, I'd probably have an easier recovery. I was smart enough to know that with increased weight comes usually more complications. So I tried to lose weight, and I was able to drop roughly four, four pounds or so in almost four weeks. Not much, but I knew it couldn't hurt. Besides, too much weight loss too quickly could also actually be a problem. And then there was the, 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 the time of the mental prepar preparation. Uh, included in this was prayer, informally uh, meeting with my wife and praying, informing my family about my upcoming procedure. And then there was the weight, you know, the worry. I had an army of people from my church praying for me as well as family members and friends. That was cool. Out of the blue, from people I didn't know, the prayer requests were coming in my way. It was incredible. I also experienced a lot of people that were close to me that were in shock. That didn't necessarily boost my confidence, and although it wasn't their fault, it did add doubt whether it was going to go well. You know, the more urgent the prayer is, like, yeah, why are you praying so urgently? Um, but, you know, again, I'm not being too critical. That was all good stuff. After all the tests were completed, it uh, uh, you know, the, to look into my chest, to see 
what, what you know what, how it was going to go for the surgeon. Uh, they checked out my lung capacity. Uh, they wanted to know how thick or thin, you know, my blood was. Uh, they did a countless number of tests. And then the schedule moved forward. Uh, you know, and they also checked for um, drug use, alcohol abuse, blood glucose, white blood count, red blood count, on and on and on. They wanted to know their chances for survival, for my survival, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I got that impression once in a while. It was more about if they thought they were going to be successful in doing this. And maybe it's the wrong impression, but it seemed like they were less concerned about me living and more concerned about whether they were going to do a good job. It's an odd way of thinking about it. The statistics I've learned, you know, for a successful heart bypass is very important to the surgeon and to the hospital. So I wasn't sure how to take that. They wanted to be successful, but their motive seemed to be at times to be more about their reputation. But I guess if they are successful, then I live. The evening before my surgery in late July, I had to shower using this special soap that pretty much killed every germ on my body. Then early the next morning, I had to use that same bacteria-killing soap a second time before driving into the hospital, which was uh, in southwest, uh, southwest Michigan. In short order, I was sitting uh, in a hospital bed, trying to smile for my family to give the perception that I wasn't freaking out inside. I knew that in short time, they were going to cut open my chest. They were going to crack my sternum open, and they were going to work on my heart. It was a little nerve-wracking, and I'm not ashamed to say that I was very afraid. The nurse inserted the IV into my arm and wrist, and I knew I would have many tubes and wires coming out of me by the time I woke up, and that was absolutely the truth. I had a smile on my face moments before going under, and I have proof of this from a photo my wife took of me with her cell phone. There was next to no pain from the IV. I don't know why. Nothing was really hurting. But then the next thing I realized, you know, I was, I was awake. I was out for cold hours, and then I woke up. The next few days were fuzzy, to say the least. I now see photos of me from that week of the surgery, and it, uh, it helps me recall my memory. My surgery started around 6 a.m., I think, and my eyes were opening around 3.30 p.m. But I have very few memories of that entire week, let alone the day of the surgery. Friends and uh, wonderful family, church friends, people visited, uh, talked to me in the hospital. Um, sadly, I don't remember a lot of it. Uh, I guess I even talked to people a lot <laughs> the, the very day or the next day of my surgery, but I just don't remember it. All the drugs, um, the meds from the surgery, you know. I, I was even hallucinating, drifting in and out of sleep for a few days. My wife tried several times to feed me, but I guess I wasn't hardly eating at all in the hospital. I didn't eat much at all. Uh, I guess the medications, you know, they just change your, your taste buds. It was a difficult week. I'm not going to lie. My hallucinations were odd for a couple of reasons. First, they didn't bother me. There was no panic or fear in my stomach while that was happening. I simply sat back and observed when the small, I don't know, like crickets, see-through crickets walked around the painting frames on the wall and then grew in size until they took up the entire room and then they'd fade away, I just sat back and watched. I actually sat back and watched these invisible crickets. It wasn't until days later when I started to improve 
mentally and physically that I started to experience uh, any anxiety over the hallucinations. While they were happening, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Huh, okay. I remember seeing uh, letters, letters on the wall that would sometimes make up words. The first time it happened, the message was, you're a loser. You're never going to get through this. You're going to die. And then the next day, while sitting in my room by myself, the message was, you're going to be fine. You have people supporting you. You have people who love you. It was mind games in my head. It was as if God was reassuring me that time. Yes, I believe it was caused by the drugs. You can believe what you will, and I'm opening. I'm open to your interpretation. You know, is that uh, the devil trying to tear me down and God trying to assure me? I'm sure God was with me the the entire time. So I'm gonna assume that it was God trying to trying to assure me that everything was going to be okay. One day, while my son and wife were visiting. I pointed at the wall across the hospital bed and told them about the letters. My son, the med student, said, Oh, you see letters, eh? He knew I was hallucinating. But to me, they were totally and completely real. They were there. The next day, I tried to tell a nurse, and she responded, Yep, I was told you were hallucinating. Everyone knew I was hallucinating except for me, I guess. Her response actually confused me at that time. No one seemed to believe me that there were letters on the wall. One other thing that stood out was the certain belief in my head that all the events I experienced were deja vu. During the first week following the surgery, I didn't wonder if the events of the week happened before. It was as if they absolutely had had before, had happened before. It was a matter of fact that all these events, my surgery, the people visiting, Everything had happened for sure. I remember thinking to myself, yep, this is exactly how it happened last time. Um, boy, it was, it was strange to think back about it, you know, nine months in advance. I mean, I mean, there was just no wondering about it. I never thought to myself this might be deja vu. On day three... While hooked up to a dozen monitors, which transmitted my vitals to the nurse, to the nurse's station, two nurses walked into the room to inform me that my blood pressure was dropping. My friend was there. My wife was there. A doctor friend was in the room, along with my fourth-year med student son. The nurses made some adjustments and then left. Five minutes later, they returned again to say that my blood pressure had dropped further to about 90 over 70. Then a couple of minutes later, they returned again. Another five minutes later, again, they keep telling me, you know, they kept telling me that my blood pressure was dropping and dropping and dropping. And this time it had dropped to like 80 over 65. It wasn't until it dropped even lower that everyone in the room seemed to be uh, getting a little concerned. My wife actually ran out into the hall to get somebody's attention while I started slipping into unconsciousness when my blood pressure dropped again to 60 over 40. I remember thinking to myself that if this is the way I'm going to die, now remember I was drugged up, so I was pretty calm, but if this is the way I'm going to dr- die, it actually you know, is going to be quite peaceful. It's not like I was going to die in a fire or something crazy. There was no panic or fear at this moment, just a peaceful, easy feeling that if I was going to die, I would just fall asleep and fade away. But I didn't die, and the nurses made one more change. And I recovered to a more, 
quote-unquote normal blood pressure. Someone once asked, what's it like to face death? And I guess, I guess my answer would be, it depends on how you die, where you are and what you're doing. And have you reconciled with all your enemies? And you know, there's a lot to that answer. My chest was very dry uh, while I was there. The skin of my chest and stomach was peeling. I, I, I don't know why. No one would really give me a straight answer as to why. Uh, it was like I had a sunburn, a bad sunburn. I asked several nurses and a few doctors, and no one really told me. One doctor said, it's just your skin peeling. It's like, duh. I knew my skin was peeling. My family doctor weeks later finally told me that it had something to do with the anesthetic they put on my body and some type of cleaning that they went through right before the surgery when I was out unconscious. It took quite a few weeks for it to eventually go away. I never had to worry about it long term. I just wish that somebody would have given me a nice clean answer. Uh, no pun intended. And to just tell me why my skin was peeling so badly. A little warning would have helped. I was also surprised when the amount of Back pain I experienced. I mean, a tremendous amount of back pain. Prior to my surgery, I experienced very little back pain. But I have read that back pain is actually more common than you think with open heart surgery. My family practice doctor assures me that in about 9 to 12 months, it should be gone, should go away. As I work towards improving my muscle strength and my movement through rehab, the same goes for my shoulder pain. I had a lot of shoulder pain. It just came out of nowhere. In time, while in the hospital, I, I slowly improved. Although I do vaguely recall that the first two days immediately after my surgery, I had more energy than I did on day three and afterwards. It was explained to me that those were the steroids that gave me all that energy for the first day or two. And then the steroid, steroids were wearing off. So from day three to day six and up until the day that I left, I think it was in the hospital six, maybe seven days, I was pretty miserable. The steroids were mostly out of my system, and you can definitely feel my body just wanting to collapse. Uh, back to day six, I was tremendously relieved in so many words to actually be able to go to the bathroom since having the catheter removed. It, the catheter was removed on day three, and it wasn't until day six, I think it was, that I was able to use the bathroom. Uh, that was not good. That was not good. And I don't mean to scare you if you're going to go through this. It doesn't happen to all. It happens slightly more to men than it does women, I'm told. Uh, and it happens about 30 to 40 percent of the time. So I'm told maybe 50 percent of the time. And again, no one warned me about this. The medical reasons were explained to me. Later, in simple terms, it had to do with the muscles not being used for such a long time. And the bladder sort of like going into a super relaxed sleep mode, like a laptop that refuses to reboot. The thought of going home and having to use a catheter in myself, that was not good. So being able to use the bathroom the last day at the hospital never felt better. It was a huge step forward to being normal again. And at least I had one thing I could control. So coming home, coming home, uh, I was a bit anxious. Getting to the car, getting in the car, buckling my seatbelt. Remember, they, they cut open your sternum. And it takes 8 to 12 weeks for your sternum to really come back. 
and heal. So my sternum was wired together. And so I was pretty worried about that. So getting in and out of the car, that was all very difficult. Then there was the fear of my sternum breaking, right? And the pain of the seatbelt on my incision while my wife drove me home. Every bump. I saw every bump and every pothole five yard, 500 yards ahead. I feared being injured because being injured could mean a need to open up my chest and start the process of healing me all over again. I feared falling since I lacked all the strength. I mean the atrophy. I couldn't balance. I feared lifting my arms above my head, which you're not supposed to do. I'm not supposed to put my arms behind my back. That can tear open my stitches and hurt my sternum. I feared infection. I feared pneumonia, which is common with open heart surgery patients. Um, I feared my heart would go into AFib, which I was, I was warned about that. It can happen. I feared accidentally pulling up out of a chair, pulling myself out of the chair, or someone grabbing my arm trying to pull me up since that could break open in my chest and stitches. I worried about bumping into somebody. I, I simply feared I, I was fragile. Not mildly fragile, crazy fragile. I was more fragile than ever before than ever in my entire life. Add to all this, you know, the extreme weakness. Sitting up in a chair made me dizzy. Meds were still being adjusted. My blood pressure med interacted with another med. While at the same time knowing this, they closely monitored my weight and my heart rate. It was a balance act, you know, of meds. And I recall feeling rather faint, but wanting to move about as much as I could. I felt completely dependent on others, but didn't want to be. I couldn't even use the toilet on my own or bathe. Everything was brought to me while I sat hopelessly, hopelessly in that chair. On my first day home, the nurses and the docs wandered me up and moving. I was to walk four minutes a day and then to increase it one minute a day each day. By day 10, I actually got up to 15 minutes of walking. So think about that. 10 days after being home, which is about 16 days after my surgery, I was able to stand up for 15 minutes in the entire day. The rest of the time I sat or slept. My first goal was to walk from the living room to the kitchen. Then on day two, I walked around the dining room table and then into the kitchen and then back to my chair. And I was dead tired, totally out of breath doing that. By, th by day three, I walked to the driveway, not down the driveway, to the driveway. Then I would go down to the street and back. And then I would go to the boulder across the street each day a little bit more and it was so crucial to my recovery my exhaustion brought me to tears my breathing my lung capacity seemed to take weeks to return the meds getting off of the anesthesia dealing with the pain all added to a short bout of depression but i did want company and i did want people to come and see me and i received such wonderful help from family and friends and I knew it was important that family and friends come to see me, but at the same time, I didn't want them there. I didn't want to be by myself. That would have contributed to depression. And I was told that depression after a major surgery like this is actually pretty common. So think about it. I went from being told that my heart was skipping beats to going through major quadruple bypass surgery at the age of 56. 
it hits you in the face hard and reminds you that life here is pretty short and precious. Mentally, psychologically, no one ever prepares you for this. I believe that the medical professionals should do a better job preparing people for this. It's, it's just not another patient. It's me. They see, and especially on the floor where I was, they see dozens and dozens of these patients each week. It, to them, it becomes just another patient. I was back to work after two weeks, believe it or not. Yeah, that seems crazy. But at a, after 14 days, I started to answer a few emails. I started to get on a few phone calls. Working after two weeks really meant just trying to catch up on emails, really, and to make one or two phone calls or simply letting people in, uh, or excuse me, uh, listening in on conference calls and so forth. I'd add a comment here, a comment there. Eight weeks, and I got my driver's license back. After 12 weeks, I was told I could actually fly again, and I made my way to Germany for a trade show. 12 weeks. I've been... Uh, you know, thinking back about that. And then I even think about, wow, I found it crazy insane <laughs> at 12 weeks after this surgery. But I, I was determined. I was determined. My quadruple bypass was completed with two arteries from my chest and a vein out of my leg. And then another uh, area of my chest, was, I, I don't remember all the details. I, I had four holes in addition to the cut around my sternum, I had four holes, which are now scars, uh, where the they had half-inch, looked like half-inch tubes sticking out of my chest. There were four wires sticking out of my chest that I recall, maybe more. Um, I think two of them were like monitors, and two of them may have had something to do with a, shocking me out of AFib if I needed it. I'm not sure. Recovery included cardiac rehab. I was encouraged to go three days a week to rehab. However, my travel schedule... Um, really held me back from doing a better rehab, but I do. I highly recommend. It. I highly recommend you go to to rehab, uh, especially if you're an uh, older patient. You got to get active, and I think my activity and and me forcing myself to get back to work was was very, very, very helpful. It's human to have uh, anxiety, you know, and it's human to think about how crazy this was, about what they had done slitting open my chest, and so forth. I have received a lot of text messages and emails and phone calls from people to help. My wife was overwhelmed with all the offers to help. And that, you know, perhaps the fact that I, I've i told people, you know, that you know, people were praying for me and, and I accepted that, you know, it was that that Christian belief of mine that really helped me get through a lot of this. And I know that non-Christians get through this well. Don't, But you know what? I did feel that God was a part of this, and I felt just crazy blessed when I had the people from our church and family and so forth being there. It was it was amazing. You know, I, I probably could have asked for more, for more help. Maybe I'm at fault for not asking for more help during my recovery. Perhaps I should have been more assertive in telling people I needed to get more help. You know, I think about the lawn not getting mowed and the side of the house not getting washed. You know, you sort of feel embarrassed, like, you know, gosh, that's supposed to be something we're supposed to do, you know. But your muscle strength is not there. I mean, it takes 
six months to where you really start feeling like you got your muscle strength back. Um, it reminds me of a story that my brother-in-law told me years ago. My brother-in-law, who is a retired pastor, he had um, brain tumors. He had several brain tumors. And I asked him one day what it was like and what it was, you know, what his experience taught him. And he said his response was that he now knows what it's like to go through the experience and he wanted to turn that experience around to help others who may be going through other brain tumor surgeries and the similar experiences. So that was a lesson for me. The lesson is I need to be more helpful. You know, I need to be a better uh, a servant. I need to have a better demeanor and a better attitude. Maybe it seems to me that as we go through life and suffer from, from you know, these bodies that are falling apart as we age, it puts us in a better position to understand pain, uh, to un- a better position to understand the suffering that goes on around us. I guess I'm gaining a bit of wisdom through that experience. And now that I am fully, you know, almost fully recovered, I still have pain in my, not in my heart, no, not my chest pain in my heart, but on the surface. You know, my chest is still numb. And some people tell me that may never go away, but there's a part of my chest um, around my sternum area that's still numb, and it could be that way forever. My leg, um, my right leg still hurts. It's not horribly bad, but it still hurts. It's sensitive to the touch. And uh, it, it may never come back. I still, from about my knee, the inside of my leg, just below my knee, down to below my ankle, it's numb. And I'm not sure that I'll ever come back. You know, if they sliced into a nerve accidentally, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I want to have the wisdom and the ability to see what other people are experiencing. So if other people are going through this, I wanted to share this experience with them and to help them better understand that you get through it. There's always good at the end of the day, you know, uh, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. If you, you know, the fact that you had the surgery is actually good because you didn't have a heart attack. I didn't have a heart attack. And if you even did have a heart attack and they still do the quadruple bypass surgery, man, that's a blessing because they recognize that there's hope for you to have a good quality life. Through this pain and suffering, this experience, I'm going to, I'm going to do all that I can anyway to make it a positive thing. I'm going to look for ways to help other people who are going through this trauma. And I'm going to try to be open-minded about their suffering, you know, the trial that people might be going through. And since I know that I needed to be more assertive in asking for help, like I said, I'm going to turn that around and be more assertive in offering help. So that's my story. My quadruple bypass experience. Um, like I said, it's been nine months. Um, I still have a flutter in my heart once in a while. I don't know what it is. I'm going to see the cardiologist probably in the future, but it's rare. It's nothing like it was before. It could be just normal. I told the cardiologist about it and he said he thought everything was fine. My blood pressure has been normal. I'm fully back to work and, uh, I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic about the future. So next time, uh, the next episode, I'm going to be uh, actually interviewing somebody, and I'm going to keep it a surprise. I got two or three people that are on my list, and uh, um, uh, remember, this is you know Christian businessman's perspective. So the next message is always going to be from a Christian perspective. 
Whether they talk a whole lot about my Christian faith or not, it's always from that perspective because that's who I am. Have a good week.